0: Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show.
1: Jason Riley from the Wall Street Journal today. And I never know whether to say this or not. Go ahead.
0: Do you, you, you love him? You love him deep.
1: Do you, do you point out Jason Riley, Thomas Sowell, McCorder, any of these people? Do you point out that they're black or is that uncool? It, it, no, I, I, I understand
0: your hesitancy. I, I think it is useful partly to counter the utterly insulting. And I seriously, I get upset when I talk about this, the incredibly insulting notion that's pitched on the left that all people of color think the same.
1: Jason Riley, Wall Street Journal, Waukesha killings made the media colorblind again. That's the story of the guy who used his car as a weapon and drove through a parade and killed a bunch of people, and he's a lifelong, horrifying criminal. In the aftermath of George Floyd's death last year, employers offered black workers time off to deal with the news. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And UCLA suspended a professor who refused to grade his supposedly traumatized black students more leniently than their non-black peers. Do you remember that story? You're supposed to take it easy on the black students because they can't be expected to do well in their tests. In Certainly the not. George Floyd. Yeah. Such gestures, says Jason Riley, may have been well-meaning, but they're also nonsensical and reeked of condensation. Are black psyches really this fragile? And are blacks so starved for exemplars that miscreants must be treated like martyrs? Should Floyd's death matter more to them than the no- huge number of black homicides that don't involve police? And why would people who aren't black be any less disturbed by a video showing a police officer kneeling on the neck of a defenseless suspect for nine minutes? It's a good question. It's 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 uh it's uh, patronizing and condescending on both ends. You're acting well, like I'm- that guy because he's black can't go to work or school because of it. And that I'm, because I'm white, don't, am not affected by somebody killed in the street. Sure. It's just fine. Just fine to see that terrible, terrible incident. And you
0: know, I would suggest that it is only because of the weaponizing of the case by race. And then the the my uh, extension, we've all heard this, that the white man is the devil unless you bow uh, uh, down and take a knee and worship Ibram X. Kennedy. I mean, it's only that sort of rhetoric that that made it about race, really. I mean, uh, and, and I don't deny for a second that the treatment of black Americans by the cops through the decades has been oh, no. problematic. Without it's a doubt. Awful. It's absolutely true. But, yeah, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't people like us that whipped all that stuff
1: up. Uh, Jason Riley goes on to say, so this is what happens when racial identity becomes the centerpiece of politics and public life in a multiracial society. The political left often pretends to pine for a post-racial America. But that's the last thing it really wants. I recall a guy who ran for president a little while back after talking about how there's no black America or white America or Asian America, just the United States of America. And then he became president and stopped talking like that. And so was his vice president. Uh, people who are interested in a post-racial America don't name their organization Black Lives Matter or welcome racial propaganda like the 1619 Project into elementary schools. They don't advocate racial preferences in college admissions or racial quotas in hiring, and they don't call for white people who were never slaveholders to pay reparations to black people who were never slaves. That's the most succinctly put I've ever heard that. Uh-huh. Um, I want to jump because uh, I don't want to run out of time before I get to uh more of the meat of this. He he's he talks about how he's um uh the Rittenhouse trial came out the way it should have ha- it should have come out, etc., etc. The same press outlets that portrayed Mr. Rittenhouse as a white supremacist have had remarkably little to say about the racial identity of Daryl Brooks, the black suspect in Wisconsin who was accused of plowing his car through an annual Christmas parade last month and killing six people, including an eight year old boy, all of whom were white. Given the suspect's hit, and I didn't know this next part, given the suspect's history of posting messages on social media that called for violence against white people and praised Hitler for killing Jews, you'd think that his race and the race of his victims would be relevant to reporters. Race is all anyone would be talking about if a white man had slammed his vehicle into a parade full of black people, yet suddenly the left has gone colorblind. All oh, I, can you imagine if he posted that sort of message and end praised the Nazis for the love of heaven? Uh, Yeah, I, I didn't know that he actually had made posts about violence against white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'll jump to this. Once we go down this road and get into the habit of racializing such events, we may not be able to contain that ra- racialization, says Brown University econo- economist Glenn Laurie in a recent speech for the Manhattan Institute. Soon enough, we may find ourselves in a world of instances where black thugs killing white citizens come to be seen through a racial lens as well. This is a world no thoughtful person should welcome since there are a great many such instances. The political life's hyper-consciousness about race might help Democrats turn out their base, but at a steep cost. National cohesion in a country large and ethnically diverse as this one has always depended on our ability to focus not on our superficial differences, but instead on what unites us uh, as Americans. We are playing with fire, a phrase I've been using a lot lately. If we continue to go down this road, and we are, and I think we're going to end up right where they're talking about, where if you have some actual black criminals kill some innocent white people, it is going to be seen through a racial lens and justified or overlooked. And then we're into some really, really scary territory. I would argue that we are on
0: such a rapid downward slide it's almost inevitable because first of all i mean that happens all the time Uh, of, of the virtually every single one of those horrific assaults of elderly asian people whether in the bay area california new york whatever was black on asian crime the media did not discuss that they suddenly had no interest in race the horrific cost. We mentioned it just a little bit earlier. Uh, Cook County, which is essentially Chicago and a couple of suburbs, um, just had its one thousandth homicide of the year. The vast majority of those people, those victims, are young black people. Now they may be gangbangers or whatever, but they're young black people. And if Black Lives Matter, and if you have a human soul and you're concerned about human life and and it being deprived. Uh, that's an enormous story, and the race of the people involved shouldn't really matter to you at all, but it is soft-pedaled. It is actively soft-pedaled by the legacy media because they're so uncomfortable with the racial dynamics there. So we've taken an enormous step toward what Jason Riley is afraid of.
1: Yeah, Ying Ma texted me the other day. She said, not sure if you guys have already covered this brutal beating of an Asian girl in Philly. Group of black girls attack Asian students in Philadelphia. More white supremacy. Um, Yeah, that ignoring violent crimes, depending on which direction the race goes, not a good direction to be going. No. No, it's I mean, it's that this is not just like regular talk radio cable news, something to talk about or get worked up about crap. This is a serious Tears society apart, leads to lots of death problem.
0: Yeah, I'd say this is your doctor sitting you down and saying, this is serious. Um, you know, oh, something that just flitted through my head again, blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh, and we are also seeing, and I think this is an under discussed aspect of the enormous number of smash and grab robberies around America. And it is all over America now. Um, there is a notion within uh certain sections of black america that they have been cheated for so long they've been treated so badly by the white supremacist government and and why would they think that oh gosh they're being taught it from elementary school through college they're hearing uh, you know the new york times tell them that they have decided that the law does not apply to them and indeed the uh, the smashing grabbing the looting the sacking of the economy Uh, The establishment, these stores, that is not only not bad, it's good. It's appropriate. So here we
1: are, Jason. Yeah, pretty damned troubling. That's a very, very heavy topic, but uh, was worth discussing.
0: Armstrong and Getty.
1: I'm Jack Armstrong, he's Joe Getty, we're the Armstrong and Getty Show. Are you tired of gulping down the lying filth of the mainstream media? Yeah,
0: we are too. We try to tell you the truth every single day.
1: Gulping down lying filth. Wow. Nobody wants to sound dumb. Our goal is to help you not sound dumb. We'll inform you and it'll be fun at the same time. You have to choose between entertainment and information. Combine them both with the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty On Demand, four episodes available every day via the iHeartRadio app or wherever you download your podcasts.
2: Our economy is growing faster than it has in decades. Ah,
0: Just like 15 minutes ago, we were reading this CBS uh, news article that was explaining how terrible the economy is, how people are devastated, they have no money, and we need not only a fourth round of stimulus checks, but it just needs to be like every other month until we say,
1: uncle. That it just needs to be a recurring payment because things are so bad. That's one think- of the weird messaging things that the, the Biden administration has. That's just nobody can seem to figure it out. How are you bo- going to, how are you? Well, they are. They're going around making two different arguments at the same time. They make the argument about how people are hurting out there. So you can get the build back better pass. People are hurting. They need this money. This is very important. Well, at the same time, because he's getting killed on the economy, like 70% of Americans think Biden's failing on the economy. He and Kamala Harris are going around spouting statistics that are just fanciful to try to argue on how they've done such a great job on the economy. Well, you can't do both. Right. <laughs> it's weird that you're doing both of these at the same time. <laughs> and claiming that you created all these jobs, the government shut down the economy for like nine months, wouldn't let anybody work, wouldn't let anybody open their business. Then they opened it back up. When people go back to work... You don't get credit for all those jobs, all right? The jobs that you crushed. It's like choking your
0: friend half to death and then claiming credit for reviving them. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't work that way. So i am that was half unfair, though, playing the utterly unlikable, talentless uh, poltroon who's serving as our current (laughs) vice president. Come on now. Let's let the head guy speak for himself. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, Clip 21, Joseph R. Biden.
2: Everyone, everyone is a little harder. So, you know, so mom can, grandmom can walk out without having uh, out of her porch without worrying about falling, can take care of herself, can be left alone. They're gonna keep working to pay the bills. Look, my plan is simple. We're gonna make sure we take care of mom, we're gonna take care of the child. You and those of you in the sandwich generation, you're dealing with both. You're dealing with both. Look, and families can save money
0: Boy, I'm, I'm part of what? the sandwich generation for sure. <laughs> Ham, peanut butter, tur- club. <laughs> Club's my favorite sandwich. I love a club sandwich.
1: What is, it, what is a club sandwich? That generally has,
0: uh, like, a bacon, some, oh. some chicken or turkey, maybe some avocado, lettuce, tomato. It's usually got, like, three layers of bread for some reason.
1: Mm, I'm on a sandwich kick right now coming out of the hospital. Yeah, I'll have to try that.
0: Oh, you can't lose with a club sandwich. Oh, my
1: back gosh, to I... the uh, president. What the hell was he talking about? Uh, well, not he's to hard to follow. Not clear to
0: me. Yeah. Yeah. Mom, grandma, out on the porch, struggling, <laughs> struggling. We want to be sure she can stay alone on her porch. Why is she struggling? Is it what?
1: <laughs> Surrounded by
0: sandwiches. <laughs> oh, man, that was some rambly garbage. Do you play that again, Michael? Why not?
2: <laughs> everyone, everyone is a little harder. So, you know, so mom can, grandmom can walk out without having, uh, out of her porch without worrying about falling, can take care of herself, can be left alone. They're gonna keep working to pay the bills. Look, my plan is simple. We're gonna make sure we take care of mom, we're gonna take care of the child. You, and those of you in the sandwich generation, you're dealing with both. You're dealing with both. Look, and families can save money all right.
0: <laughs> All right.
2: Those of you uh, in the sandwich generation are
0: mm, delicious sandwiches. Wanted to tell you this tale sent along by alert listener Jeff. One of the first practices of the season. Freshman basketball team Notre Dame prep, Pontiac, Michigan. Coach tells his 14 players, "Hey, set up a group chat uh on your on your cell phone so you can communicate practice times and coordinate transportation, whatever you need to do. Everybody ought to have everybody else's numbers." Well, the 14 15-year-olds got 13 of those phone numbers right, but the 14th, one of the players messed up a digit. So a random guy chimes in. On what was supposed to only be the freshman basketball Uh-oh, team here uh, comes, conversation, here comes porn. And he says, no. He says, uh, y'all meant to add me to this. Yeah, they told him, thinking it was their teammate. He goes, you know who I am? He replied, and they said, yeah, you're our teammate. Well, it turns out it wasn't their teammate. Uh, it turns out the interloper was Sean Murphy Bunting, cornerback for the reigning Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, Murphy Bunting, who was in his third NFL season, uh identified himself to his 13 new group chat friends. But the teenage basketball players still think it's their fellow teammate trying to pull a fast one, right? So Murphy Bunning sent them proof, a selfie of himself, throwing up a peace sign in front of his locker, bedecked with his Bucks helmet and shoulder pads. Still, a few of the boys were skeptical. So, he FaceTimed the boys. Uh, Jason Whalen, assistant coach whose 15 year old son plays on the team, recounted the conversation of the WAPO. He said, uh, his son gave him the play. What followed was a whirlwind tour of the Bucks locker room, including introductions to all the boys, to some of the team's most famous members, tight end Rob Gronkowski, Wide receiver Mike Evans, cornerback Richard Sherman, running back Leonard Fournette. One of the guys had Fournette on his fantasy football team. Wow. For the Bucks upcoming wow. Sunday game. So we encouraged the running back to have a big game. That's hilarious. Four days later, Fournette runs for a hundred yards, scores four touchdowns over the, uh, the Colts. Um, and, and then the
1: kids, they got a little greedy. They got a little bit greedy. They said, Hey, Is that Tom Brady there by any chance? Can we talk to Tom Brady? (laughs) How would you not ask that?
0: Well, Fournette said, ah, bad news. Brady's in a meeting. But he stayed on the phone. Fournette, the the all-star freaking running back, and chatted with the boys for another 10 to 15 minutes. Then, all of a sudden, a face pops in front of the phone. It's the GOAT, Tom Brady. What's up, fellas? He asks him. They absolutely lost their minds at that point, said one of the dads. Uh Brady, who they go into how big they is. so he chats with the boys for a while. Um It was nice, said Brady. It would have been nice for me when I'd been high school too. Um Even better because he was from uh I think he was from Michigan originally. Well, he played for the the Wolverines. Yeah, Um yeah, and so it just it, it was sweet and great, and and these kids heroes giving them a bunch of their time. It was just nice. Or she was in San Mateo in high
1: school, <laughs> just down the road here. Um, right, so. Uh... But you've mocked me many times over the years and rightfully so. Like when I give a phone number and get a number wrong and you say you have to get all the numbers right because if you get one number wrong, it's not like you get the business next door. Right. But this, this seems to be different. You, they got one number wrong and you get a different sports league. So your basketball players, you get one number wrong, you end up with pro football players. I mean, that's not it the way. kind fo- of funny. That's not the way phone numbers work, right? It's not like you got one digit wrong and got a celebrity chef
0: or <laughs> something like that, or a great architect. No, it was, a, it was a, another athlete, just a
1: different one. <laughs> I just thought that was sweet. If I'm trying to call a steakhouse and I get one number wrong, I don't end up with a pizza place. That's not just <laughs> that's the not way- the way phone numbers work. <laughs> no, but it did no. in this case. Yeah, that is really something. I may have to become a Bucks fan. I
0: don't know. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. But resist, we must. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Well, what a pleasure this is to talk to Bill Bratton. Bill was the commissioner of the Boston Police Department in the 90s, commissioner of the New York City Police Department, chief of Los Angeles Police as well, and his new book is perhaps the perfect book for our times, The Profession, A Memoir of Community, Race, and the Arc of Policing in America. Bill Bratton. Bill, how are you, sir?
3: Doing very well. It's uh, great to be talking to you on the West Coast. I had seven great years there at the LAPD, so it's uh, always nice to reconnect.
1: Awesome. Um, So, I uh, noticed the other day how crime is climbing the charts like a hit record in terms of a topic, a political topic. 75% of Americans believe crime is worse today than it was a year ago. And for their own local area where they live, a majority, 54% of people say crime is worse than it was a year ago. After decades of crime going down, it's going up, and people's perception of it also. Uh, well, first of all, do you agree with that? And what's to be done?
3: Certainly agree with it. What I'm surprised about that it's not 100% for both categories that uh, what had happened at uh, beginning in the 90s, we began a crime reversal turnaround that uh, for 30 years, America was getting safer. There were certainly spots that were not, but New York City, my home city, homicides down 90%, overall crime 80%, overall crime in America down 40%. Many of the cities that you broadcast into uh, were doing pretty well over that 25, 30-year period of time, but Last couple of years, it's uh, uh, turned around dramatically. What's different this time is how fast it's happened. And people didn't expect that we are focused on the coronavirus. And now that the virus is subsiding, this new virus is moving to center stage. And it's going to be as difficult as the coronavirus to deal with.
1: Well, there's a hot video making the rounds on social media yesterday out of San Francisco. Because they have decriminalized crime in San Francisco, you had a, a guy clearing off the shelves at a Walgreens into a trash bag, getting on his bike and riding out the door without anybody doing anything about it. I don't know if you saw that.
3: Did not see that, but it's just a, one of a slew of videos in the sense of the lawlessness that our politicians have created in state after state, city after city, where basically prosecutors won't prosecute for shoplifting. So police are not going to make arrests for it. Store owners are beside themselves. And so, uh, how can you have a society where there's not punishment for wrongdoing? Uh, whether it's minor like shoplifting, but in the sense of minor shoplifting, if you own a store, it's not minor to you. Uh, and then it just encourages more egregious behavior. That character guarantee you will be back in a week with a bigger shopping bag, and uh, what- because nothing's going to happen to him.
0: What do you think led to the election, especially on the West Coast, of some of these far-left DAs, uh, Chesso Bodine and and his sort? Um, Is it just that crime had gotten so low, people started to think that there was no need to be tough on crime?
3: Well, the irony of it, in terms of one of the uh, tools used to get crime down, had been arrests, etc. Enforcement of quality of life crime, after the 70s and 80s, we paid no attention to it. Then in the 90s, we began to. And there was a concern that uh, uh, too many people had gone to jail. In California, you had three strikes and you're out. And a lot of people went to jail for life for uh, a third uh, seemingly minor crime. So there was this sense that, well, crime was down. Let's try some alternatives. Unfortunately, the criminal justice reform movement is moving too fast. Uh, with some well-intended ideas that basically, in practicality and reality, are just not working out. Relative to your DAs, George Soros' Open Society has been funding the election of progressive DAs around the country. You've got a number of them, certainly in California. I actually think what's going to happen, most of them were elected during times of relatively low crime, and they were going to put their ideas into a public that had become somewhat complacent. If we have a couple more years, like this past year, you're going to see a return to the 90s where the public going to rise up and say, we've had enough, let's get back to some law and order.
1: Yeah, I read your... Uh piece in the new york times over the weekend pretty cool you got featured in the new york times book review where they ask uh, the authors all the questions i really enjoyed that and actually i've started reading okay. that 1939 that you recommended is one of your favorite books
3: but you also yeah, talked to... a great 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 book the rise of uh nazi germany mm-hmm. yeah. and the lead run up to the uh, world
1: war ii yeah i'm loving it so far but you also mentioned the book broken windows and the influence it had on you what what describe that for anybody who doesn't know what that theory is about
3: broken windows is a theory articulated by uh, george kelling great friend and mentor recently passed and jim wilson passed a number of years ago uh... that i'm probably one of the principal uh... implementers of practitioners of and adherence to broken windows uh... uh basically is the idea that if you don't take care of small things like small crimes on the street that you create an atmosphere of increased lawlessness for example the shoplifting you just talked about you don't deal with that, that guy's going to come back and just keep coming back. You've got to stop it. It's like a child. If you don't correct behavior in that child, that child's going to get out of control. You don't weed your garden. The garden's going to get out of control and basically destroy even the strongest tree. So we practice that, but the challenge is policing is to do it in an appropriate degree. It's like a doctor treating you for an illness; you don't want to be over-treated. And there's a lot of attacks on broken windows now because we felt it was unfairly impactful on minority neighborhoods, where so much of the crime just sort of occur, unfortunately. And so I'm a great believer in it. It's community policing. The essence of community policing is partnership with the community to identify what is it the community wants the police to address, and how do we address it together. And what's the goal? Prevention. And so community policing and broken windows are one and the same thing. When the community calls you to come in and deal with the the drunk on the corner, the gang on the corner, the barbecue that's gone out of control, the prostitute, that's broken windows. That's fixing those windows that are creating fear in a neighborhood.
0: Which leads us uh, brilliantly into the next uh, phase of the conversation with Bill Bratton. His book is The Profession, a memoir of community race and the arc of policing in America. Where do we start to heal the distrust and an out and out dislike between much of urban black America and our nation's police departments?
3: It can be done. One of the reasons I went to New York, excuse me, to Los Angeles, a primary reason was I believe that in that city that had one of the worst racial situations between police and black community in the nation, a police force that had literally been at war with this black community for 50 years, that the issue of police and race are entwined. You can't separate the two. You're never going to solve the race problem until you solve the issue of police dealing with race issues. And so in L.A., I purposely went there with the belief that uh, if we could fix the problem there, or at least ameliorate it significantly, uh, there would be hope for the rest of the country. And we did it. Uh, By 2009, after seven years, crime was down dramatically. We increased the size of the police force, increased minority representation, and the race issues in the city. Uh, That city did not have as significant uh, uh, race racial disturbance from 2002 to, the George Floyd event, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so there had been a growth of trust between the black community and the LAPD. LA Times uh, editorialized when I left the city in 2009, after we finished implementing the federal consent decree, that finally a corner had been turned on race relations in Los Angeles. So it was quite an accolade. So it can be done, but it requires a lot of hard work and uh, I write about this in the book. There was a community activist, Sweet Alice, down in Watts. And when I was leaving, she said to, to me, Chief, you know why we like you so much? And I said, no, Sweet Alice, why is that? She said, because you see us. You really see us. Uh, and what she was saying was that uh, to basically solve problems, you have to see each other and see each other's perspective about problems. It can be done. It's a lot of hard work. You need patience. Uh, but it can be done.
1: I know I only got about a minute left, but a a constant refrain from the left is, we have too many people behind bars, build schools, not prisons. I feel like we need to have as many people behind bars as are committing crimes. That's the correct number. But do we have too many people in jail?
3: We, for a period of time, did put too many people in jail. There's a lot of people who went to jail for drug offenses. My own state, New York, Rockefeller Laws, laws, uh, uh, California, three strikes, you know, A lot of people could be uh, treated for narcotics instead of being in jail. Uh, A lot of people could also, who had committed those broken windows, minor crimes, be sent to alternative types of uh, rehabilitation rather than prison. So did we over-incarcerate? We did. A lesson learned. But you're correct that uh, a lot of people have to be in jail. In New York State, 80% of the people in state prison are there for violent crime. So this over-incarceration myth, you don't go to jail for fair evasion or shoplifting in New York. You go to jail for violent crime, and even then it's hard to get you in jail or prison sometimes. So it's a, it's a hashtag that's been driving a lot of public policy and a lot of sentiment, uh, but it was based on some reality, particularly back in the 90s.
0: The book is The Profession, A Memoir of Community Race in the Arc of Policing in America. Bill
1: Bratton, Chief, hey, it's great to speak with you. Thanks for the time. Good luck with the book. Nice
3: talk. Good luck with the draw out there, guys.
1: Thank you. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I don't want anybody in jail who doesn't need to be in jail. Absolutely. Uh, right. Uh, hardly a worse thing could happen when you're, when you lean libertarian and have somebody behind bars that doesn't belong there. But it's kind of interesting that we had the lowest crime rate in U.S. history at the time that we, uh, were, were over jailing people. Um, I don't want to over jail people, but, uh, crime was real low. Right, absolutely. Well, and, and this gets back to
0: the Joe Getty, uh, principle of societies veering between the guardrails and never realizing when they have it right in the sweet spot. When you feel like we're over incarcerating people, look, there's no crime. The, the urge is to listen to people who want to go way to the other side. And and they are the loudest, most persuasive voices, and those who say, "Look, let's let's move a little carefully, let's tweak it a little bit, let's be careful what we do." They're just not nearly as exciting. Yeah.
1: And so it's just really difficult. We're constantly oversteering as a society. Plus, you create a new generation every generation, and the new generation grows up without crime, and they don't understand what's the big deal because they didn't right. they, and, didn't, they and, didn't live in a time where people get whapped on the head walking down the street. And plus the the lefty pleas of compassion
0: and healing and the rest of it really appeal to the young heart. Uh, you know, as, as Churchill said, if you're 20 and not a liberal, you have no heart. Um, I thought his stuff on uh, Sweet Alice and You See Us was just a great point and how, you know, the cops have to be in the communities, the communities have to trust the cops, and there's a lot of healing that has to take place, and it's a lot of work. And, you know, I'd also point out that if you defund the police, you're going to cut training, and you're going to cut initiatives like that.
3: Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe
1: Getty. I've you. Let's go, Brandon. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Apple Biggest company in the world, richest company in the world, a lot of times, uh, does a lot of their business in China. That's a lot of how they ended up being the richest company in the world. And now that we all realize China's an enemy of the United States, how's that all going to work out? And how did it start in the first place? So the New York Times, in their daily podcast, they're talking to their tech expert about this whole topic. And they got into a number of questions.
4: A new president assumes power, Xi Jinping. And he has a very different style than his predecessors. And from that day on, the relationship between Apple and China fundamentally changed. How so? Well, I can actually just start with literally the first week of the presidency. Mm -hmm. So... He assumes power on March 14th, 2013, and the very next day, Apple was under attack. China Central Television, which was the main government broadcaster, aired a report criticizing Apple. And basically they were saying that Apple doesn't issue long enough warranties for its products. The implication was that Apple was really ripping off Chinese
1: consumers.
4: And very quickly, there was this coordinated criticism of the company across Chinese society. The Chinese state-owned newspapers were calling Apple a quote-unquote scoundrel. Chinese celebrities were all criticizing the company on social media. And it was really clear that this was a sign on you know just the second day of Xi Jinping's administration that the Chinese government was taking a different tact with Apple.
1: That is wild. When you have an authoritarian government you can do that, obviously. You're the president and two days in you can say okay, celebrities, newspapers, everybody, Apple's bad. Apple's bad. Get the word out.
0: Wow. How does that work? They got movie stars, I guess. So you're some movie star, you're some movie stud, you're lounging by your pool, sipping some commie lemonade, enjoying the company of some nice commie babes. All of a sudden the phone rings, it's your agent darling darling i need you to do something for me
1: stop (laughs) tweeting from your iphone oh wait no it's china we don't have twitter stop posting from your iphone (laughs) yeah 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 you gotta come out against apple i like apple (laughs) yeah i
0: know you gotta come out
1: so that played into china having the leverage that they were looking for over apple clip 18. And a big reason why china
4: was changing its approach was because china could China suddenly had a lot more leverage, and it had a lot more economic power, in part because of the investment from Apple and other Western companies. You know, by 2013, China was the world's number two economy, and that is a very different place than it was in 2001, and it meant that Xi Jinping had more power and more ability to get
1: his way. 2001 notable timeline, because that's when a lot of these uh, agreements with American companies started to take take form and then uh, how Apple responded to this.
3: Apple trying to save face in one of its fastest growing markets. That's for sure.
1: Within several weeks, Tim
4: Cook took a really unusual step.
1: Now, an unexpected apology this morning from Apple
4: to the Chinese people. He issued an open letter and he apologized. Tim Cook saying, quote, we recognize that we have much to learn about operating and communicating in China. And said that that Apple had, quote, incomparable respect for China. And that Apple had a lot to learn about operating in the country.
1: A, a humbler
0: Apple, if that's possible mm-hmm. here. Heading toward the closed-
4: And it was a real sign that the dynamics of this relationship had fundamentally changed.
3: Apple try- Apple trying to save face and one it- of...
1: Oh, no, uh, sorry about that. That was a miss. misclick um wow well first of all i don't think you could get away with that right now if apple had to do that they did that before we all had d- decided that china was an enemy but so the 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 power completely shifted there as you could see apple had all the power against china then all of a sudden china had all the power against apple hey you want to continue to be uh to do your business here and be as powerful as you are well here, here's what you, how you're going to do it yeah and having read a
0: bit about this lately Apple made so many bets that were dependent on operating in China. They So much of their business model was China only. I mean, it would only work in China. The idea of yanking out of China and continuing on is just, it's a farce. It's too much would have to change. So they're in a terrible position right now.
1: Yeah, and I know I've got another clip where they talk about there's no plan B, and that probably gets to what you're just saying here. I do want to hear that. What is their plan B? How are they going to deal going forward? Because the world has changed, and they have to react to it somehow.
4: Pretty quickly, there were these conversations inside of Apple about the dilemma that they faced in China. And specifically, there was this former Apple employee who was a senior advisor in China. And he told me that early on, he realized the predicament Apple was in, and he tried to get the company's leadership to do something about it. And so he was able to get an audience with some of Tim Cook's top deputies and make the case that Apple had basically no plan B to China. And that really left the company vulnerable to the whims of the government. But ultimately, nothing really changed at Apple. And that was in part because there was really no other country that could support the type of manufacturing that Apple now required. And there was certainly no consumer market that could make up for the lost sales if Apple had to leave China.
1: Wow, I might have to dump my Apple stock. That, that's a, that's a serious conundrum Apple has. Oh, yeah. When has the most valuable company in the world ever been in such a situation? For years, it was General Motors. For many, many years. Like most of my life, General Motors was the most valuable company in the world. Um, but they were never in a situation like this where they were, they were at the, the whims of a foreign nation as to whether or not they could make cars.
0: Right, right. All of a sudden, Detroit goes <laughs> communist. Never happened. Yeah, i uh, I am really grateful. I'm not Tim Cook, although Tim- I think I would probably enjoy his income.
1: Tim Cook got the job because he was the guy in Apple that suggested and led the way toward. Hey, here's how we make our model work. We build stuff in China; it's the big market. We can sell iPhones to and we can make them so cheap there. So he's, you know, he's all about that. That's how he ended up running the place after Steve Jobs left. So, again, as you just heard there in the report, they don't have a plan B. Well, there probably isn't a plan B. Can we go to a different country with a billion people where they have slave labor? No, you can't. Yeah, um, not only not only incredibly
0: cheap labor at the time, but a really educated workforce where necessary, great system of highways, and the rest of it. I mean, there are plenty of third world places where people work for peanuts, but they don't have the other infrastructural stuff China
1: has. I just read where the number of Americans who see China as our primary enemy has doubled since last year. That might double again next year. Yeah, Apple's got a problem. It Apple's got a and it should, yeah. Apple's got a problem.
0: Armstrong.